why you want to grab me? all you movie junkies and cinephiles it's time for the sls cast with your hosts matt and tim and welcome one and all to episode 158 of the sls cast yes ladies and gentlemen this would be the world chess federation episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that the number of member nations in the World Chess Federation just happens to be 158. And with that, a little bit of World Chess Federation knowledge, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from California, the good old Hollywood, the wonderful Hollywood land, the place where Star Wars has taken over and shut down the fucking world, it would be... Tim, Tim, Tim. Yes, that is right. And it is true. Star Wars has indeed taken over all of Hollywood. They completely shut down the famous Hollywood and Highland where you have the Disney-owned and run El Capitan on one side of Highland and the Grauman's Chinese Theater on the other side. And apparently there are premieres happening all week, so they just thought, fuck it, we're going to close the bitch down and just deal with it, folks. Just deal with it. And that's what is happening right now, as we speak. People are dealing with it. Unreal. Well, I'm sorry that you're having to deal with all that terrible, terrible Star Wars-related horror. It's not that bad, really. I mean, I, I live close to there. But I'm kind of far away enough to where I'm not directly exposed to all the sheer craziness. But I am indeed seeing Star Wars at the 7 p.m. Friday night showing at the Grauman's Chinese Theater. Well, actually, I don't think it's Grauman's anymore. But the Chinese Theater. So I'm super excited for that. Matt, and I know uh, beforehand we were telling, uh, we were kind of talking during the pre-show about uh, Star Wars and people waiting in lines and whatnot. And I was telling you that... There are hordes, I don't know if it's hordes, but uh, numerous amounts of people that are waiting in, in, in lines all across the country waiting to get into the theater because, or to get into a theater, uh, because there are still some theaters, uh, probably even most theaters, don't have reserved seating. Uh, so of course you want to camp out so you can actually get a ticket, let alone at least get a decent spot in the movie theater. But at the Hollywood Chinese Theater where every theater there is reserved seating, there have been people waiting in line for, I mean, I I think about a week now. I think it's been since last Monday, people actually started uh, waiting in line. And if you look at all the pictures there, I think on The Hollywood Reporter and on the news, they've been showing pictures of people in line. Uh, They have a big sign that the theater put up says, Star Wars line uh, starts here, and it says, like, The Line Awakens to, I guess, promote that the line is ready to be sat in for two weeks. So, I don't know, would you wait in line for two weeks to see Star Wars? If that, I mean... 
or not, for anything. I mean, not in today's day and age when you can get reserved seating and all that good stuff. Um, well, how about 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Well, okay. I will say, uh, you know what? I guess, I mean, there's no real, I, I mean, I don't, I don't understand why at a theater where they have reserved seating, people are waiting out there. Um, maybe there's door prizes or giveaways. Maybe that they're hoping to see people somehow connected to the premiere in some way. I don't know, but uh, I'm hoping there's some valid reason other than seating to sit out there. Which I I do believe the premiere is tonight. Well, so then maybe that's what they were doing. Maybe because they'll be somehow associated with the premiere and possibly get some, I don't know, swag or something. However, uh, back in 99 or whenever, yeah, I guess it was 99, that uh, they did the episode one. I had uh, a friend of mine, and his brother was his brother. I'm sorry, his brother-in-law and sister were like ultra hardcore Star Wars fans, and they had camped out at the movie theater for like several days. And I did go out there the night before it came out, and we hung out and we were drinking surreptitiously in the parking lot and everything, and having a nice time. And I do remember that it was a really cool experience. Now me and my buddy just kind of showed up there and we hung out for a few hours and it was nice, but then we ultimately left and went back to bed, you know? Um, and I, I, I would have to say that the experience in and of itself was pretty cool. So I guess if you want to experience something like that once in your life, Hey, that's cool. But there just really needs to be a reason for it. And I don't know what that reason was. This I, d- I did do it for Revenge of the Sith. I did uh, wait in line for Revenge of the Sith. But still, I mean, you, I mean, at that time, 10, yeah, about 10 years ago now, you could still get tickets. You can pre-order tickets online. So you would just be waiting for your particular movie to start, you know. But my thing is, is that you see people waiting in line, camping out. I mean, they are literally camping out. You see tents, you see little cookers, like little campfire stuff. I mean, stuff you would actually take with you to go camp. I mean, you're just shy from RVs, really. What if you have nowhere to put that stuff when it's time for you to go inside? Like, I'm sure maybe like 10 years ago or 20 years ago when people first started actually doing this stuff, I mean, hardcore doing this stuff, waiting for weeks on end, there must have been like three guys or three people that were like, oh shit, man, we we didn't plan this far ahead. We, we needed somebody to, uh, to round up our gear when it was time to go inside. Uh, it is entirely possible. I, but how 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 has your last week been, sir? Since our previous recording, good, good. Uh, I went to a wedding, which was lovely. Well, that's and that's pretty exciting. much it. Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, I survived my finals week, um, as we all know from last week. I was not in the best of moods, as it were. But here we are on the fourteenth of December. And 11 shopping days till Christmas, depending on where you live and how it's going and the time of day. Um, 
for most of us, there's just 10 shopping days until Christmas and probably not even that much. And by the time you hear this, there will certainly be less. But I was able to check and they had already posted grades. So I did manage to get the three A's and a B that I was looking for. So I have a 3.75 GPA. Well, look at you, man. Yeah. That's good. Ooh. So do you have like a nice little kick in your step now? Or... S-M-R-T. What now? Do you have a nice like kick in your step now? Are you singing, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein songs or the Gershwin music playing in your head? No, you... no. I am just in a much better frame of mind, though. So I am now working with um, a sheriff's officer friend of mine on getting into a very, very early, like three o'clock in the morning show of Force Awakens at a theater that uh, people are not aware of that has been renovated. But because people don't know it's renovated, they think it's still scratched, uh, folding chairs and a scratch screen. And so it turns out there is still plenty of seating. So I think we're working that out for Force Awakens on Friday morning, early, early, early. Cool, man. Just no spoilers. I don't want to know anything. Oh, me neither. Me neither. That's why I'm actually considering a 3 a.m. showing. I've never done that in my life. I was really just going to wait until, you know, Monday, Tuesday, the following week, and just try and luck out at a matinee or something. But, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. So do you have any news of the weird for us this week? Um, yes. As a matter of fact, I do. But before we do that, I do want to hit the hit the old email box, which you can, of course, send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And it turns out that our friend uh, Vengeful Jedi, at Vengeful Jedi, who I talked about last week, um, and mentioned he was a host. So it looks like now the web of interweaving, intermingling that we all are doing in our podcast circles has grown yet again because now we have a new follower in the at Geek Dig podcast uh, or the Geek Dig podcast and that's at Geek Dig pod. So yay, thank you for that. A little bit further cross-promotional stuff, so that's fun. That was really the only thing we had in the old email box. So thank you there. Please feel free to send us anything you would like. We'll more than likely read it because that's how desperate we are for email. Uh, but I do have a little bit of... I, this is kind of a news of the weird, but at the same time, it's kind of awesome, kind of justice porn, and still a little what the fuck. And it comes to us from myfox8.com uh, by way of the web staff for Fox 8. Uh, this is uh, from Las Vegas. It says a Nevada homeowner recently taught some pesky thieves a lesson with a disgusting delivery. Eric Bardo told KTNV that he had just moved to the neighborhood when packages began disappearing off of his front porch. He decided to install a home security system to scare off the thieves, but when that didn't work, Bardo decided to get revenge. Bardo decided to use his dog's poop to teach the thieves a stinky lesson. Quote... One day, I kind of just thought about cleaning up the poop and putting it in a box, and that's what I did, end quote, Bardo told KTNV. His surveillance camera captured video of the thieves taking his special delivery. Bardo said he didn't call police, but hopes the boys have learned their lesson. Quote, I didn't want to call them and say, somebody stole a box of poop off my front porch, end quote. 
And that's my little bit of news of the weird. It was you. Uh, we, we all know that was something that you, you totally yes, did. Yes, I have been surreptitiously going to Las Vegas. That's how I support my unknown gambling habit. But um, anyway, yeah. So thought that was kind of funny and interesting. And somebody literally got to open a box of dog shit. <laughs> Merry Christmas, package thieves. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, without further ado, I guess we can do some real news. What do you say? Sounds good. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the news. <laughs> And first up from me, I have only two pieces of news this week. This is one piece of news that I did not get a chance to get to last week, uh, but I still thought it was pretty interesting. Comes to us from the street jot, jot? the street dot com, uh, and it says this is by way of PR Newswire. Um, let's see. It says Kevin Spacey joins Masterclass to teach acting. That's right. This comes out of San Francisco. Uh, Masterclass announces Kevin Spacey as their newest instructor. The Academy Award winner and House of Cards actor will teach an online acting masterclass, which will be available on uh, masterclass.com slash KS. Uh, in his class, Spacey will share the most important lessons he's learned over the course of his career. The class is being directed by House of Cards director Tucker Gates. Uh, pre-enrollment actually opened on December 2nd, and the class will be available early 2016. Um, this is pretty interesting. Masterclass is a San Francisco-based tech company. Uh, launched earlier this year, and it's an online education platform. It's designed to basically learn from professionals in the real world, um, and also, so you get people like uh, James Patterson, Dustin Hoffman, Christina Aguilera, and these are people who actually have experience, have the talent, and the know-how to help shape people and lead them to be more than just aspiring actors or musicians or various professionals. And this is what Spacey had to say about it. Quote, education has always been an important part of my life. The teachers, mentors, and those who gave me opportunities along the way have made me feel blessed because they taught me the value of striving to be your best. From Joe Papp to Alan Pakula, Sam Mendes, and Brian Singer, I have learned so much from being in their master classes that now master class takes my experiences and combines them in a way that now allows me to give back to others. I'm delighted to be a part of this new wave of online education. As my mentor Jack Lemon used to say, quote, if you've done well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down, end quote. I look forward to passing on some of the things I've learned, end Kevin Spacey's quote. So what do you think there, Tim? Um, it's like 90 bucks. You get uh, between two and five hours of video, and they have uh, interactive ex exercises and stuff. Um, and apparently the class literally never expires. So would you would you take something like that if there was someone like you know really interesting in the writing world say like in the script writing world or a really badass director or something would you would you do that maybe just out of morbid curiosity or what 
You know, yeah, I think it would be kind of cool. I know uh, they've done this at least one other time with Dustin Hoffman. And, uh, God, I think that one must have been like, it seemed like that was like seven hours long or something. And it just seems cool. It's really neat because we all, as actors, I mean, I'm not acting right now, but when I was an actor, or even now, I guess with writing and directing and stuff, I still look up to these performers uh, because Dustin Hoffman is an, an accomplished director as well. Not as well to me, but as well as his, you know, next to his acting career. You know, he's also a writer and he directs as well. So I think it's interesting. It's like it's like your your biggest heroes are teaching you their craft, uh, what they learn from their uh, from their mentors and whatnot. So I think it's cool. I think it's a it's a great tool for those that are interested. So yeah, for sure, I'd give it a shot. Outstanding. All right, cool, man. Well, what do you got for us? All right, I'm going to do a pair of news. Both aren't really related <laughs> but i guess to disney first one here pertaining to star wars the force awakens hollywood is indeed on lockdown for the uh, force awakens premiere as well as point break and the revenant premieres that's fascinating uh that is another reason why hollywood and highland is closed down not just for the force awakens but for point break and the revenant as well um there's even talk that they have uh, bomb sniffing dogs walking around all week just to make sure that nothing is going to happen which is a good thing uh, but in addition to that, I have here from the HollyReporter.com box office, Star Wars is an unknown force in China. And I thought this was pretty interesting. With many questioning how J.J. Abrams' The Force Awakens will perform in the world's second biggest movie market, THR asked the leaders of China's largest cinema chains to make predictions. With $50 million in North American tickets sales a month before its opening, and some analysts predicting as much as $2.7 billion in global box office, Star Wars The Force Awakens is all but certain to be a smash hit. But J.J. Abrams' reinvigoration of the fabled franchise faces a crucial nagging question. China. The country is now the world's second largest movie market and expected to overtake North America as a number one in less than three years. So Disney needs a reasonably strong performance from The Force Awakens there, both to satisfy shareholders in the near term and to build an audience for the myriad Star Wars sequels and spinoffs in the pipeline. The film opens there on January 9th, three weeks after an international rollout in North America and most other countries. The world's most famous movie franchise is also surprisingly unknown in China. The original three films never received a wide theatrical release in the country, meaning Chinese movie fans of all ages harbor little of the Star Wars nostalgia that lurks in the hearts of millions of filmgoers elsewhere. When George Lucas's original Star Wars came out in 1977, China was just emerging from the ravages of the Cultural Revolution. The Avengers of Luke, Leia, and Lord Vader were indeed a galaxy far, far away from the everyday concerns of the country's most impoverished population. Uh, let's see, I'm going to skip down a little bit to I get to some quotes here. 
Here we go. Social media analytics from Lamplight, meanwhile, issued a report Monday showing that online chatter about The Force Awakens in the country has been lagging behind neighboring Japan in South Korea, where the Star Wars brand has deeper history. Quote, while China is on track to become the biggest movie market in 2017, Star Wars failed to gain as much traction as in Japan and South Korea online, despite China's massive number of social media users. End quote, the report said. To get a clearer picture of The Force Awakens' China prospects, The Hollywood Reporter took the question to those on the front lines of the country's booming box office, the CEOs of China's largest movie theater chains. Here are their predictions. I'm going to read a couple of them here. Zhang Meijun, president of Wanda Cinemas, China's largest theater group operating on estimated operating in estimated 2000 screens, says, quote, "Star Wars will have a bigger impact in the US because it means more to older generations there. To do well in China, it is the opposite. It has to reach young people." I'll estimate $230 million. If it's effective at reaching the younger demographic, what we call the post-90s generation, which now make up 60% of China's box office, it could do even better, end quote. Yu Zin, CEO of Dottie's Cinema Group, China's second largest cinema chain with 276 cinemas operating 1,300 screens, says, quote, it will definitely be successful. The only thing we're waiting to see is just how successful. I'm quite confident it will break $310 million. That's 2 billion Chinese uh, yuan. What, how was it? U-A-N. Yuan, I guess. Yeah. Yuan? <laughs> Our young more people... Like, more like a kind of like a huan. Huan? Yuan? Yeah. Our young people love science fiction right now, and I'm sure... It will have an exciting, optimistic story. It will influence a new generation in China and create potential for the future Star Wars films. In all quotes there, uh, there are a few more quotes and there is a little bit more to the article. I wanted to mention this because I always think it's interesting hearing uh, hearing about this stuff from another perspective. Uh, especially from such a, a foreign market as China, because there are oodles of films that come out in Japan, China, and really the entire Asian market that never really see the light of day in the U.S., but they're big box office successes over there. I think the, actually the number one movie in China last year was, I can't remember the name of it, but it was about these little monsters. It was like Monster Adventure or something like that. And it was huge. But nobody other than people that follow this stuff, nobody has ever seen it in the U.S. Or let alone has ever actually heard of it. But they are actually going to bring it over and do like a limited release and all that stuff. So we'll see how it goes. So it's just kind of interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Matt, do you have any comments, questions, or concerns about this? Do you find this interesting at all? Well, I do. yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting in that... Um something that has that that is always thought of and conceived as kind of like a global phenomenon and then you find and and in some ways of course it is just because of the influence that it's had but then you actually take a look and you see where you know no things things don't always play out the same way um everywhere just like that you would think and then of course conversely other countries have the same problem trying to bring content here and everything so uh yeah it is it is interesting in that regard 
Is it marketing hilarious? Oh, yes. From the country that brought you the scan this code and watch a movie on your pizza box, it's... Uh, let's see here. All right. So that, that was news like... God, was that like eight months ago, nine months ago? Yeah, it was about a year ago, I think. And I've heard <laughs> nothing else since then about that. I think it was like Domino's or... Something like, I know, it was whatever. Yeah. It was, I, I just remember it was in China. The news! Anyway, all right. Well, this is my last news. And this, honestly, is not like uh, from a news site or anything. But it is still the news. I was just walking and then noticed in something that I was reading that there was a My Big Fat Greek Wedding sequel. And so I actually looked into it. And holy crap, this is news to me. There is literally a My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. And it is coming out next year. And it's got everybody from the original film that had any kind of major influence on the film. So, obviously, Nia Vardalos, uh, John Corbett, Lainey Kazan, Michael Constantine, uh, Joey Fatone, right? So, all of the people that you remember from the movie, it's also got, like, John Stamos is going to be in it. So, um, they're literally... And and it's been shot. It's done. It's in the can. They are editing it for post-production because it comes out... (laughs) On March 25th, 2016. And if that date sounds familiar, it's because it's opening up against Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. I think it's like they have another sister's plan. Man, maybe if the wife doesn't want to go and see Batman versus Superman, then they'll get to have some action with my big fat Greek wedding, too. So... I don't know. That's my news. What do you think about that there, Tim, if anything, and bring us home on the news front? Yeah, I actually never did see my big fat Greek wedding. Is it worth checking out? Should we review it? Oh my god, no, it's really good. Is it It really? It is, yes. It is truly a charming movie. My wife uh, had to see it, and so she went and saw it at the theater. um, It's still the number one romantic comedy, like, ever. The movie was $5 million and then ended up making over $300 million at the box office. And it was never number one at the theater one time. Despite never having been the number one movie at any given week, it still stayed long enough that it garnered $300 million. Really? I didn't. I thought it yeah. was like number one for weeks. It never... Never. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize it was that. Always like, it was always in there, right? Like it was always four or five or six or something like that. Yeah, because I remember it was it a just, huge movie. Yeah. It did so well. And uh yeah, so it's like the ultimate sleeper hit. And then um and so I made fun of her for it, you know, because I'm like, Oh come on, seriously, you're gonna watch a movie about a you know, a Greek travel agent that fell in love for you right? And so she's like, Well, you have to watch so by the time it came out on D V D, she had to have it. And I don't remember if, if she bought it on her own or if I got it to her for a gift or something, but so we had the D V D. And she's like, you have to sit down and watch it. And I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. Sit down and watch it. And it was, I was pleasantly surprised. I could not believe, I was like, wow, this is actually a pretty good movie. And to this day, we still quote it. Um, 
Is she looking forward to the sequel? Has she seen the trailer for the sequel? She doesn't know either. I haven't had a chance to tell her. Uh, Monday is a really, really, really busy day for her, and so she does not get home until... Don't tell uh, her. Sit her down and say, I have a trailer to show you. Make sure she doesn't see what it is, and play the trailer, and record her reaction. If she absolutely (laughs) loves the first one, I think that might be worthy of people to hear. I don't know. it, it, It is very quote worthy. Uh, Michael Constantine plays her dad, and everything he does, like with the whole Windex gag, uh, is really good. The whole, you know, give me any word, and I can tell you the Greek origin of the word. Uh, all these things are really cool, but our favorite thing is the whole, why you want to leave me? Which is what he says every time <clears throat> Nia Vardalos' character of Tula um, tries to, like, move on with her life. You know, so it's pretty good stuff. Anyway, no, but that's my news. So bring us home on the news, sir. I already have a few pieces of news to end with. Matt, do chime in at any moment because I'm sure I I know you're going to want to comment on at least a couple of these. Chime in now. This is a moment. (laughs) io9.com. How about now? (laughs) Disney was somehow shocked that Michael Jackson grabbed his crotch in Captain EO. This is written by Cheryl Eddy. <laughs> you do that Why so well. Why you want to grab me? Sorry. Go ahead. You, you missed out on another funny thing. You could have gone, Why do you. Me? Do it again. Oh, do it again. Do it right. Why you want to grab me? io9.com. Again, Disney was somehow shocked that Michael Jackson grabbed his crotch in Captain EO. Uh, In Captain EO, for those of you who do not know, Captain EO was a very popular attraction at the Disneyland and Disney... I believe it was at Disney World. It was just for like 31 years, right? I mean, it was only a popular attraction for like 31 years. You know, I don't... don't, It wasn't 31 because they they stopped showing it after a while and then they brought it back a couple years ago. It it went until... I think it was 96. It went from 84 to 96 and then it eventually came back in 2009 after Jackson passed away. Right. So it started it as kind of a tribute but then it just was so popular in that regard that they've kept it until now. Yeah, I I was lucky enough to see it when it first came, when I guess when I went first, but I guess it was like 93, so its original run. And then I saw it a couple years ago whenever they brought it back um, to Disneyland. And I got to say, I was kind of surprised they didn't uh, do any digital restoration on it. I mean, it was exactly like the same exact video or the same exact film that they used for 20-some-odd years. But anyways, uh, continuing here with this article, Captain EO has been a Disney Park staple since 1986, the height of Michael Jackson's post-thriller fame, but the Francis Ford Coppola-directed, George Lucas-produced short will shut down December 6th to make way for the new attractions. Um, oh. So it, it shut down. Yeah, it it, like yeah a couple weeks ago. Though it only ran 17 minutes, Captain EO was a big-budget, groundbreaking special effects showcase, and it attracted all kinds of top talent of the era, some of whom inevitably butted heads. There's also all kinds of fun tidbits, like how George Lucas, coming off a break from showbiz after Return of the Jedi, wanted the production design to have a used future look like Star Wars did, and how co-star Angelica Houston had a dream before she was cast that she'd work with Michael Jackson. 
Speaking of Jackson, though, most folks agreed that he was shy and childlike when he was off stage, but became a different person once he started singing and dancing. Sounds about right, but there are a few surprising revelations about how Disney reacted to Jackson's performance. As relayed by EO cinematographer Peter Anderson, Michael had a propensity, propensity, P-R-O-P-E-N-S. Propensity? There you go. To do his crotch grabs. It was kind of unheard of back then. And this was Disney. I was told to crop the upper torso or go for a higher, tighter shot or something like that. But they were part of his routine. So it wasn't like he was only occasionally doing it. It was on his beat. Disney started cutting the film together and saying, Oh dear, oh dear. Michael also had a rather high-pitched voice. People weren't used to hearing him talk. They were used to hearing him sing. The studio was trying to figure out how to modulate or replace his voice for the talking scenes. There were groups of people at Imagineering and some at the studio that were afraid that that would make Eo feel too comedic. There was some playing around with this and the idea of changing the octave. There were even a discussion about doing voice replacement for him. There was a whole thing going on in the background of how do we do it and not offend him? And I remember sitting there and saying, you're actually going to change Michael's voice? They desperately wanted to, but no one had the guts to approach him about it. End all quotes. There... I have no idea who the hell could have could have done his voice. I mean, like Matt, who who do you think would have stepped in to perform the voice of Michael Jackson as Captain EO? Who would have been a good replacement voice? James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. <laughs> <laughs> doing doing Darth Vader? <laughs> nope, nope. No, just regular speaking voice. <laughs> and continuing with my news here from the hollywoodreporter.com Michael Jackson's chimp script, Bubbles, tops Blacklist. (laughs) That's right. Michael Jackson's chimp script, Bubbles, tops the Blacklist. Uh, For those of you that do not know what the Blacklist is, it is published every year, and it is comprised of a a list of of scripts that never got picked up, but they were apparently uh, sought after by many studios or many directors and whatnot, and they developed some kind of steam until virtually they just sort of lost the steam and fizzled out. And the article says this, written by Rebecca Ford, the 2015 Blacklist, a collection of Hollywood's best unproduced screenplays, was announced Monday through Twitter. This year's list, which featured 81 scripts, was revealed via YouTube videos featuring famous writers, directors, and actors starting at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time today. Among the participants was Channing Tatum, Damon Lindloff, Danny Strong, Nick Holt, Lily James, and Ryan Coogler. Three of the last seven Academy Awards for Best Picture went to scripts featured on previous blacklists, as well as eight of the last 16 screenwriting Oscars. Among this year's award season contenders previously featured on the list in some form include The Revenant and Spotlight. Established in 2005 as an annual survey of several dozen executives' favorite unproduced screenplays, the blacklist has grown to survey more than 500 execs each year. Below is the complete list by number of votes. And I'm just going to read the first one. First one, right here. Uh, 44 got the vote. 
and it's Bubbles by Isaac Admanson. Or Adamson. Adamson, not Admanson, Adamson. A ba- and it, this, is the, this is the synopsis for it. A baby chimp is adopted by pop star Michael Jackson. Narrating his own story, Bubbles the Chimp details his life within the King of Pop's inner circle through the scandals that later rocked Jackson's life and eventually led to Bubbles' release. Yes, that is a script that was made and people (laughs) did like it. Matt, would you pay money to see a film about the life of of a chimpanzee named Bubbles you know, and him recounting his tales of living within Michael Jackson's freaky inner circle. Hmm. Gonna go with no. What if James Earl Jones was playing Michael Jackson? Maybe. <laughs> I guess it'd be a maybe. Alrighty, and I will end my news with this one since we are running out of time. Uh, Another article from io9.com. The choreographer of The Apple really thought he was going to win an Oscar. This uh, was published uh, uh, November 20th of this year. It's written by Charlie Jan Anders. And it says this, The Apple is one of the most legendary cult movies of all time, this disco dystopia in which a singing duo from Saskatchewan get perverted by the satanic music industry is a legendary study in excess. But Nigel Lithgow, the film's choreographer, really believed he would get an Oscar. (laughs) These days, Lithgow is best known as the producer of American Idol and So You Think You Can Dance, the latter of which he also judges. But he recently gave an in-depth interview to Yahoo Music about the film, in which he reminisces about the fact, at the time, in Berlin, you could buy hard drugs over the counter, and all the dancers were on heavy drugs. Quote, it was like herding cats, end quote. He also reflects on the film's legacy, saying this, quote, I mean, it's laughable now, and it's fun to make fun of it, but at the time, it was really, really depressing on some days. Very, very stressful. It was not such a pleasant process making the film. It wasn't pleasant memories, let's just put it that way. We didn't really like the script. I mean, we really didn't. But the music we thought was terrific at the time. Certainly the use of strings and the real violins and everything was just terrific and felt very inspiring to me. All that jazz came out the same year and went on and went to the Cannes Film Festival with the Apple, and all that jazz was actually in the Cannes competition. And I kept thinking, my God, am I really going to have to go up on stage in Hollywood and apologize to Bob Fosse for picking up the Oscar for Best Choreography? I was so dumb. Because they don't even do an Oscar for choreography. (laughs) And at the end here, they edited to add to this article that the choreography in the movie is kind of insane and does, in fact, deserve an Oscar, even though the movie, in general, is a disaster. So, yes, it says here there's tons more to this interview that's worth reading via Yahoo Music, but I did get this from io9.com, who comes from the future. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my news. However, though, Matt, have you seen this disaster of a film, The Apple? No. Are you familiar with this film? I'm not. Nope, sorry. Can't help you. Fair enough. 
Sounds sounds like this is a good thing. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that is going to be basically the last of the real news for this wonderful year of 2015. Well, that was enough reminiscing about that. Okay, uh, we'll move into... It's... It's... The... The... Copy... Copy... Cat... Cat... Throwdown! Throwdown! That's right, it's the Copycat Throwdown! Well, that's right, it's the Copycat Throwdown! Stop it! Stop it! No, no, seriously, stop it. Oh, right, like, stop repeating? Stop repeating. Right. Oh, uh, okay. I'm going to kick, kick your ass. ass. Throw down All right. And this very, very final copycat throwdown for the year. We are bringing back the winner of last year's holiday copycat throwdown. Scrooge from 1951, also known as A Christmas Carol. And we are this time battling it against Scrooge, the 1988 version modernization if you will of christmas carol or scrooge now for those of you who don't recall 1951 version stars alistair sim in the titular role and is widely regarded as one of the best versions of scrooge the 1988 version is the one that stars bill murray as well as Karen Allen and John Forsyth, Bobcat Goldthwait, Carol Kane, and Robert Mitchum, Michael J. Pollard, Alfred Woodard. Uh, so basically a very good uh, cast. Um, but you also have um, Buddy Hackett is in the film. Uh, you know, the solid gold dancers. Because, you know, it, it is still 1988. But... Um, this one totally modernizes it. So instead of just a, a miserly old man who runs a small, you know, count, counting shop or whatever in London, we have the youngest network president ever in the history of television who is a miserly, brutal old, brutal guy and how he has to make his transformation. Now, for me, while I highly respect the classics of cinema and definitely think that in terms of just general viewing that of the classic versions of the Scrooge film, I am totally down with the 1951 version of Scrooge or a Christmas Carol, depending on whatever. But there is just no way that Scrooge can fail in this um, in this lineup for me, I think that it is so it is so well done in terms of getting the message across, in terms of truly staying relevant and true to its source material, but absolutely bringing it up to date for its time, and still reachieving that timeless quality to it. Yes, it is definitely getting on to thirty seven year or I'm sorry, twenty seven years old. But there are still 
a great many number of things within this film that still resonate for people today. We still have television networks. We still have cable. We still have asshole executives. We still have the corporate grind. We still have people who are getting, you know, shit on. Um, there are still popular movements that are referenced, you know, popular political movements that are referenced within this film that still can be related to today. So, yes, while we don't have the solid gold dancers, you could definitely replace that with the team from So You Think You Can Dance, right? Um, there are, I mean, it's still very, very relevant and... I think that it does an excellent job and it is just absolutely hilarious, which is an added bonus because while there is something to be said for the, for the classic more dramatic tale that is told in the 1951 version, I, they, they just did such a good job of banging home the elements that are sad and serious in the novel and in a Christmas Carol that the pacing is done and brings that and still brings those important notes home, but definitely wraps it into a very irreverent and hilarious comedy. So for me, there can be no question Scrooged carries the day and dethrones a Christmas Carol from last year. Um, and if you'll remember, uh, a Christmas Carol or Scrooge from 1951 beat out the Muppet Christmas Carol from last year. So. This year, Christmas Carol, Scrooge from 1951, loses, in my opinion, to Scrooge from 1988. What do you got there, Tim? Yikes. Well, I, I don't know how we're going to really decide on which one's going to win, because I couldn't uh, disagree with you more, senor. I wish I could pop my knuckles and make it sound like I'm, I, I mean business, but I can't, so... I guess I don't mean as much business as I would like to mean. <laughs> mm. But, um, so don't get me wrong. I grew up with Scrooge, uh, with Bill Murray as the misunderstood, angry uh, TV exec. And I always thought it was funny, and I've always thought it was, there was something kind of Tim Burton-y feel about it, you know, mainly because Danny Elfman did the score for it. And it had a really cool soundtrack. It was eerie. It was spooky. It did a good good job. It does a really good job at, at blending the Christmas spirit uh, with the story of the Christmas Carol. However, I, I never really had to nitpick the movie too much. But if, if I had to, I think it just comes down to the characters and the interpretation of the story, and and when, and when it, also when it comes down to uh, redeemable characters. And I feel that there's a clear choice when it comes to which character made more sense at being redeemable for, for, their, for their own actions. For example, I thought uh, Bill Murray's performance, yes, he plays a, a good... I mean, you really don't think he's misunderstood. He's just an asshole. And when you think about it, and you think of TV producers now, you really don't give a shit about them. So right there already, it kind of creates this utter disdain for this TV, New York TV producer, who is, uh, who is you know, not that great to women. He's not that great to his coworkers. He's really not great to anybody. And then even once the, 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 the ghosts start rolling in, he doesn't really learn anything until closer to the end of the film. Once he kind of realizes that, oh, you know, I, I kind of fucked up this, my relationship with this woman. 
because of who I am. And I really want to be with her and he kind of discovers, you know, what true love is, I guess, and the real true nature of Christmas. And just all this stuff kind of like conveniently uh, is wrapped up for his character. And the movie is, of course, you know, a happy ending. And I don't at all mean that uh, in, in, a, in a horrible way towards Scrooge, because again, I do think it's a good movie, though I do not think it has heavy replay value every year. Unlike 1951's A Christmas Carol, I can watch this movie once or twice every year just for Alistair Stem's portrayal of Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, the film itself is the best in interpretation of the story and the best interpretation of the character, or the best depiction of the character of Scrooge, as well as it is the best depiction of 1840s Dickens-based London. And I know I can't really compare that with Scrooge, since Scrooge is based in New York. But it does say something when this movie just encompasses all, everything that you think of A Christmas Carol, it encompasses all that just perfectly within this movie. The setting, the story itself, because it is probably the most faithful out of all the films that have, came, that have come out at that time and also uh, for many decades after uh, 1951. But Alistair Sims plays the character of Scrooge with redeemable qualities that actually works and are believable. You know, he's an old curmudgeon with a sad past. So you really don't ever actually hate the guy once the events of the ghosts appearing start actually happening. Yeah, you don't like him. Yeah, you're kind of scared of him. Yeah, he's kind of like that creepy neighbor. You never want to walk by their house because you're just worried about getting, you know, getting getting a glimpse of old wart face or something like that. But once you kind of get to know the character and understand their past, you start feeling sorry and sad for them. And to where once you get to the ending where you think he's, you know, he's going to, you know, he's going to die and not make it out. You just really want him to pull through and you're really, you really, uh, you really kind of, you, you feel for him. To me, there's really nothing else that can take that feeling away or that could really improve from that feeling. And yes, Scrooge does have more glitz and glamour. It has so much comedy, so much comedy, so much funny stuff, you know, colorful characters and all that jazz. But when it comes to rich, impure characters, A Christmas Carol has it beat by a long shot. So my copycat throwdown winner for this knockout... <laughs> On my end is 1951's A Christmas Carol. Interesting. Well, I think what we'll have to do. Interesting. Well, I, well no, I mean, that, that it's not worth it's not worth arguing over in the spirit of the holiday, right? It's not worth arguing over. But I think what we'll have to do for next year, though, is I think we will still have to re do this copycat throwdown, but we'll have to do you competing Christmas Carol 1951 with the George C. Scott version, and I will have to compare the Scrooged version, my Scrooged against the George C. Scott version. Okay. I think that'll, you know, be what we'll have to do. <laughs> so, and then it'll be interesting to see if, if we come back together again and, and like the George C. Scott version, because that's a really, 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 really good version. But then again, I'm kind of a sucker for George C. Scott, so that might be a... Anyway. All right. Taps, anyone? Okay. All right. So there you have it, folks. 
Matt's winner, Scrooged. But Tim's winner is 1951's Scrooge. So, yay. Interesting. Fun. Exciting. But, uh, let's see. So, as we're going into the holidays, though, our next two episodes will not have a bonus segment. However... Episode 161, we will have the return, and this, of course, will be the first true and official episode of 2016, and we will be discussing overhyped movies. That's right, Tim and I are going to have some picks for overhyped movies, because as we go into January, that's when you really start getting the hype machine turned on for late spring and early summer to have these big movies that are just going to be, you know, some super huge thing that's supposed to make a splash, but sometimes they only just make a little drip. And that's why we're going to be doing that. So, episode 161, which will debut in January, will be our next bonus segment, Three Squared Overhyped Movies. And with that, I think it is now time for... Yes, all right, so this week's movies are going to be Krampus, Creed, and In the Heart of the Sea. So where do you want to start there, sir? How about In the Heart of the Sea? I see. So we're going to start with the worst and move upward. This is a good idea. Um, all right. In the Heart of the Sea, 2015 American biographical adventure thriller film. This is based, um, again, you know, based, right? Movie quote, air quotes, because it's movie based on the nonfiction book of the same name. And this is uh, based on the sinking of the whaling ship Essex in 1820. And this is the actual event that inspired Moby Dick. Well, first of all, this movie suffers uh, from an extreme, extreme case of bait and switch. And I think that is what ultimately hurts this film the most you are given everything again again you're given this whole thing oh this is what inspired moby dick oh this is a true story this is a biographical and then the trailer shows destruction by whale being haunted by a whale and yet what you get is a very interesting but i don't want to say hackneyed but definitely uh interesting but not thorough character study on some on these guys who were shipwrecked you know um it's almost like a bastardized version of alive meets a bastardized version of 20,000 leagues under the sea and then sprinkle just a touch of uh, cast away with Tom Hanks in it, okay? Just sprinkle that across the top. And that's kind of what this movie is. Uh, you've got uh, Chris Hemsworth is 
is a first mate aboard the Essex. He's actually got a, a friend in Matthew Joy, uh, who is played by uh, Cillian Murphy, and they are definitely uh, glad to see one another. We have a new captain, George Pollard Jr., who's played by Benjamin Walker. And from the outset, you see this amazing tension start to get set up because Pollard doesn't have any experience, but Chase does. And yet Pollard's in charge and you you know, you've got this kind of interesting dynamic between a guy who, who understands his place and knows his role, but is just vastly overqualified as compared to the guy who's in charge. But it's not necessarily the guy who's in charge's fault. I mean, everybody's going to start somewhere, but because he has the family backing and whatever, it's just he's this is where he is. And so you have this really interesting dynamic that that comes out and then after tragedy strikes, these guys kind of uh decide you know they kind of bury the hatchet as it were and then nothing ever becomes of it it's kind of like well i mean i appreciate i can appreciate the idea that these guys are both to a to varying degrees very honorable men but at the same time just because you agree to disagree and just kind of leave that aspect out of it and you try to work together because you know the greater good is more important you those those problems don't magically go away and that would have added so much more depth and so much more to to watch that as it plays out until of course eventually you know circumstances cause some separations and things like that but it would have been much better to still let those kinds of things play out because when you get to a stranded section they there's not really much for them to work with and so it becomes well man that whale's got to come back any minute right it's got to come back any minute and then once again it's just kind of a glorified plot device and that's kind of the problem with the movie i think if they had been more open and honest about what kind of movie you were really going to be seeing. I think you would have been prepared for a better character study, a character study and a better drama with some elements of action thrown in. But instead you're waiting for this thrilling action to take place. And it's just so sparse that what you're left with really needs to be meaty and really needs to be good. And while it's pretty damn decent, you can't really say it's really, really good. And it is seriously not meaty. And this is the first time that I can really and truly think of with a Ron Howard film that I'm saying this. And I am really, really, you know, blown away that I'm saying this about a Ron Howard film. It's still really good in the cinematography department, especially in terms of having to deal with such desolate ideas and themes. The cinematography you would think, well, gosh, it's just empty sea. You don't have to try very hard. And that's just it. You have to make it really, really, it is really, really hard to still convey those kinds of things. So the cinematography does kind of work. The acting, for the most part, is is pretty spot on. It's just the character story itself 
the writing and the bait and switch just totally, totally kills this film. And for a film that is literally running over two hours, you've got to, you've got to deliver on what you're promising or you need to rework what it is you're trying to deliver. I can't bag on it much worse than that. It is definitely not the worst movie ever. Um, but it does fall into that in-between thing where it, I really can't say that I liked it, but it is a little bit better than okay. So I'm going to land at 2.75. What do you got there, Tim? Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, that was pretty much my review. <laughs> uh, but I will tack on a couple things. I'm sorry. That No, it's fine. Uh, but really, I actually have it written down. Not meaty. <laughs> uh, but it's not a bad movie. Uh, it just lacks the storytelling depth needed for the last act of the film to truly be moving. Uh, it's kind of like, think of think of like Apollo 13. Men going up on a mission, uh, you know, on the way to the moon, and then stuff happens. And once that stuff happens, once they can't find oxygen, they're trying to figure out a way to replenish their oxygen and stay warm. You're actually kind of pulling for those guys. You really don't want to see them get hurt. And it, you're not, I mean, it's not just them, but it's also their families and the people back down on Earth. Because you don't want them to lose what they've got in peril up in space. And that's kind of what you're missing missing with this movie. You know, you have you have these characters that are good characters and they're being portrayed by really good actors, but I just, I felt the most for Brennan Gleason's character, who is just the narrator that you see pop up, you know, like like uh, he's like pop up telling the story uh throughout the film. You know, by the end of the movie, I felt more for him than I did for Captain Chase. Uh, or you know any of the other guys? Well, no, I guess he wasn't Captain Chase. Uh, what what was Ch- what was his Chase's? Well, Chase is the first mate. That's Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or at was he at? What, did they call him Admiral or something like that? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, Chris Hemsworth character. I should have felt more for him because you really wanted to. You really want to root for him to get back to his wife and and kiddo and all that stuff. But you just really don't ever feel that. So it really needed the storytelling depth for that last act to really, truly be moving. So I just felt disconnected from the characters and the storytelling, but I was entertained by the general story and the top-notch filmmaking. And I mean top-notch filmmaking from a technical standpoint, because some of the well scenes where the camera would move around and kind of go towards the, the lifeboats or the ship, and then the camera would go underwater and get up right close to the... Um, get up right up close to the well. It was just truly kind of moving and cool and fun to watch. I didn't see it in 3D, but I'd imagine in 3D it would have been really cool to to see kind of that camera flow and uh, the well coming into picture, going out of the picture, and then like jumping out of the water and doing all that stuff. It just probably would have been really neat. But again, you have all that rousing semi-action with this really cool-looking whale but that's just kind of peppered throughout the movie. Like you never get the real feeling like the the whale is actually tormenting this crew. I mean, I don't even know if that's actually what they were trying to go for or not. And that's that's where I felt like this disconnect. Like what exactly were they trying to accomplish with this movie? Uh, and it's definitely the the screenplay's job for this not to happen. 
So maybe they need another rewrite. I don't know. Maybe Ron Howard uh, should have put his foot down. Or maybe he thought he was doing something good and it was just kind of out of his hands. I don't know. But it was still a good movie for what it was or, or for what it's worth. So I just, I leaned on three uh Three stars for this one. I thought it was good, and who knows, maybe watching it a second time, I might give it more. Right on, right on. Okay, well then, where do you want to go from here, sir? How about Krampus? All right. We are moving in the right direction. Uh, Let's see here. Krampus, 2015 American horror comedy film. This is, of course, based on the eponymous character from Alpine Folklore. It's directed by Michael Doherty. And it stars Adam Scott, Tony Collette, David Kochner, Allison Tomlin, Conchata Farrell, MJ Anthony, Stefiana Lavi-Owen, and Krista Stadler. This is about a very large family getting together to celebrate the holidays. And they, and okay, there's a whole bunch of people that, that are in here. I mean, it's, it's literally like eight or nine characters that are introduced. And they have, it, it's kind of like an interesting setup, very much akin to Home Alone. And while I can kind of appreciate that um, to a certain extent, because there's, there's quite a few throwbacks to different kinds of movies. And I know that Tim is going to touch on... Um, comparisons to like trick-or-treat and stuff like that so i'm going to leave that aspect of it for him but i noticed that like like i said like the setup was very reminiscent of home alone uh when the movie really gets going and all of the bad things start to happen in the actual horror aspects it's almost very gremlin-esque um especially for the time of year that it that it occurs and you and yet and then and then it also has other illusions again that I'll let Tim Tim speak to. And so it was kind of like I understand the idea behind what it was doing because even though it's an it's an it's inventive in terms of the story it's trying to tell, and you definitely want to when you can and you have the opportunity pay homage and also use certain things that can allow the setup to work so that your plot can be delivered. I just felt like a lot of those things, instead of being homage, were just more heavily plot device influenced instead of just kind of a regular nuanced flow. That being said, we have this big family that gets together for Christmas. Uh, we have this one kid, Max, who's just desperately trying to hang on to uh, all the family stuff. And then um, through some through a very specific set of circumstances, he ends up not wanting to have Christmas anymore. And this, of course, is where the actual meat of the story begins. I don't want to say too much more than that, other than because there are certain key critical things that happen from there that relate to everything at the beginning, and I don't want to spoil it for you. Because it's, it is a pretty decent film overall. Um... A lot, a lot of the monsters, a lot of the, you know, you've got demon elves, jack-in-the-box, evil spawn monsters, you've got a whole bunch of uh, dark creatures, you've got evil Christmas cookies, <laughs> um, and all of these different uh, elements that are harrowing um, 
harrying right yeah this this poor family as they just try to get through what it is and then you kind of understand you know how krampus is you know the evil version of santa right there's also great musical cues um in in the film and lots of fun to be had uh, definitely some interesting stuff without being too gory, but at the same time, fun scares, uh, especially with like the snowmen and stuff. And you get the idea that even though this movie in some places tries a little too hard and has problems with advancing the plot, it still doesn't try so hard that it fails in taking itself seriously when it needs to. And I think that's the key to a really good horror comedy. You have to know when to stop trying to be scary and just let the fun take over. And this film does a good job of doing that. So uh, acting, eh, nothing, nothing out of the ballpark, but definitely works for the film. And the special effects are pretty fun overall. And I had personally never heard of Krampus before this. You know, as much as I love Christmas, I guess I just, you know, am a bastard for America Christmas, I guess. I don't know. But this film overall, pretty decent. And I got to say, I liked it. It's definitely got its flaws. It's not a perfect film, but I liked it pretty darn well. And I will give it 3.5. So Merry Krampus. What do you got, sir? <laughs> yeah, maybe we ought to have, uh, have We Are Not Here to Please You to come on and explain to us their their folklore of Krampus. <laughs> that is exactly what we need. So, um, first off, uh, I, I think I think Matt Matt's review uh, hits it nail on the head for the most part. I'm going to be a little bit more critical, though. I will flat out and say I'm giving it a 3.5 as well. As well, I'm going to be critical and be. I'm also going to be nitpicky because I absolutely love Michael Doherty's first directorial film. Uh, which was Trick or Treat that came out uh, about five, six, no, six, seven, was it 2008, eight, nine, ten? Yeah, eight years ago now. Holy shit. I really like Trick or Treat or love Trick or Treat because it captures that feeling of Halloween, of Halloween night, you know, getting all giddy and ready to go out trick or treating and being with your friends and all the spookiness that surrounds you on Halloween or maybe that you build up in your mind, all that spookiness that you build up, you know, for Halloween. And it, and it captures that in such an honest and fun way that no other Halloween inspired movie can really compete with that feeling of, of nostalgia of, of being a kid on Halloween. Um, and so going into Krampus and I, I knew that it, this, this movie was different for one thing. I knew it was going to be a, a linear film. It wasn't going to be a, um, a, a movie of vignettes, an anthology film, I should say like trick or treat. And I also knew that it wasn't—it was a Christmas movie, but with a twist, with the demonic, uh, with the demonic Krampus instead of Santa Claus. Um, but what I was also expecting were the nuances and the wit, uh, the witty humor, the thoughtful uh, uh, screenplay, the thought, the thoughtful characters or the thoughtful characterations. Not necessarily the characters themselves are thoughtful, but that a lot of work went into the creation of these characters which he had done for uh, for Trick or Treat, because Michael Dougherty, he is a writer as well. He did a, he, he works with Brian Singer a lot, so he did the X-Men movies. I think he also did... Um, 
he did the X-Men movies, he did Superman, uh, and that's, yeah, I guess that's pretty much it. So I was going into Krampus expecting to have these uh, lush, well-thought-out characters, a good story, and just something that's just damn entertaining that you really don't have to put a lot of, not necessarily put a lot of thought into, but something that just draws you in and sweeps you into the action. And also to have that feeling of Christmas as well, kind of throughout it. And that you definitely do have, even from the opening with people uh, running through the toy stores, you know, showing you like Christmas has become, you know, all, all about getting good deals and, and, and stuff and not necessarily the Christmas spirit of giving and sacrifice. Um, so it captures that quite nicely during, right at the opening, right from the, right off the gate. But it's difficult me again to honestly review this film because it doesn't capture the spirit that and, and that feeling that I got from Trick or Treat that I so desperately wanted to have. The jokes are stale and a little forced, and the same goes with the characterizations, like the overly conservative hick uncle who's obsessed with all things Republican and falls into that kind of stale cliche that you see and hear all the time, whether it be uh, you know on TV, uh, on the radio with people joking about you know uh, you know just you know, trailer trash or anything like that. Uh, and even especially in movies, not only with jokes, but with characterizations, other characterizations. And so when you have something that is very stale and cliched, like this type of character, you start rehashing some of the same jokes. Ooh, I'm all into guns. Ooh, you know, all my kids are going to be d- gross and disgusting. Ooh, I'm going to have a dog that is gross and disgusting as well. Ooh, my mother is gross and disgusting. Ooh, I'm just going to be pissed off being here because I'm just... I mean, or I'm just a crazy Republican who just, you know, loves guns and all this stuff. You know, it's just, it kind of, it, again, it's it's cliche and still we've all seen it. He's kind of like the cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation, but not as dumb and with more edge. <laughs> uh, and, and so, yeah, and... Yeah, so that's kind of like what the what the gist of the movie is for me. And it just doesn't really stop there. I mean, it's kind of the movie, uh, kind of like some of the story, other story elements as well. However, the good criticisms, the good things I have to say about this movie outweigh the negativity by a long shot. For example, the film Krampus has excellent production uh, designs. Uh, the sets are well done. In fact, I went into this movie and throughout the entire runtime, the hour and 40 minute runtime, I was freezing. I was cold as shit. You know, because like it just kind of captured the feeling of, you know, you're stuck in the middle of this blizzard and, and it what, uh, these really cool scenes where they go into this house or this room and it's completely frozen over. And it's just a beautiful production design, uh, not only just with the sets and the props, but you even have the creature designs as well. And uh, and it's not just, you know, like CGI creature designs. No, these are legitimate practical effects. These are real puppets. These are animatronics that people are actually operating and so it's fun and you get this really neat joe dante's movie 80s vibe to it like what mentioned before kind of like kind of like gremlins in a way and another great uh, and more praise i have for this movie is that it feels like gremlins without it trying too hard and that is i think in a way one of a really good 
a compliment for a movie like this, because the feeling of the movie is very natural, it is very organic, and it is not trying too hard. But just the downfall of it are some of the things that encompass all that greatness, and all that cleverness, I should say, and that is some of the stale characteristics and stale uh, storytelling when it comes to the the family that the story is about. But overall, the movie does have have good surprises, not just jump scares or anything like that, but uh, but prop design, creature design, puppet design, and the ending. You get get a nice little little treat at the ending as well. Um, again, I give this movie 3.5 out of 5. I highly recommend it. Uh, and do let us know what you think. Again, I'm a big Michael Dougherty fan. I love Trick or Treat. If you enjoy Trick or Treat, just go into Krampus with an open mind and just enjoy yourself. Just enjoy yourself. Well, all right. And I'm guessing that that is going to leave us with Creed. Uh, let's see here. This is the 2015 American sports drama film written and directed by Ryan Coogler. It's co-written by Aaron Covington, and it stars Michael B. Jordan, Sylvester Stallone, Tessa Thompson, Felicia Rashad, and Tony Bellew. Um, all right. So, this movie is very very interesting because while it is its own movie you could also say that it is rocky 7 you could also say that it's a, a reboot of rocky not just the franchise but the, the but rocky um and yet at the same time it's also like a remake of rocky um, I, and I, this hybrid works really, really works. I'm blown away how well this works. <sighs> Let's see here. We have got Michael B. Jordan playing Adonis Donnie Johnson Creed. Now he is an illegitimate son of Apollo Creed, who of course passes away in Rocky four. Uh, Felicia Rashad plays his wife. Um, who was recast from the original series. Uh, Sylvia Means, I believe, originally played her. Um, not really sure why there was a recast there, but Felicia Rashad, uh, Felicia Rashad does a great job. And then he is a troubled youth who ends up being adopted by Felicia, Felicia Rashad's character. And... Um, she basically wants to try and keep him away from boxing, right? Except he's a fighter his whole life. They establish him as a troubled young youth in a detention center um, in juvie when Mrs. Creed comes in to kind of rescue him, more or less. And she's trying to get him on a path of, of having a good life, stable life, good career, that kind of thing. And yet... In his heart, he's a fighter. It's what he loves. It's what he knows. It's what he wants to be. And he studies his dad. And in, of course, studying his dad, he studies Sylvester Stallone. And so he wants to pursue boxing. And the only way he can make a go of it is to go track down the man himself and get some training. Um, and the movie basically kind of takes off from there. This film is holy shit good. 
it basically takes everything that was absolutely amazing about Rocky from way, way back when, what, 77 or something? Is what I think that movie came out? Maybe 79? And it, it just... Um, And it just totally brings it up into 2015. And yet, it also has its own story to tell. And it and it does that by incorporating all of the memorable elements from the Rocky franchise, but putting the, putting the spin on it that creates the singular character that is Donnie. Now, in doing so they create someone who is supposed to be your flawed hero in that, again, you know, he's from that rough and tumble. He grew up in the streets. He didn't have a father. Uh, He was in and out of juvie, but, you know, now he's trying to turn his life around. And yet he's going to always be haunted by that. And and is, you know, is he good enough? Can he, does he have what it takes? Is he just a name? All of these things that you have to wrestle with. And this is really the only flaw of the movie for me and it's and it's i don't want to say it's a nitpick because i do think it's a legit flaw but it really only just barely ekes at the score but it's enough to affect it in creating a new hero you have to have something for him to move on to and while i think that there will definitely be a creed to coming out of this, not just because they're going to just continue to capitalize on this whole boxing thing. Uh, it's because they told a, just a damn good story. They haven't really left room for him to have something that he needs to grow from. The only thing that they really touch on in the film that relates to him being the troubled fighter is this one scene in the film where he goes to a girlfriend's concert and he kind of gets picked on by, by another performer at, at his girl's concert. And he of course takes it personally and escalates the situation and, you know, lands in jail or whatever. Well, they're kind of trying to use that as what is going to kick off the third act and, you know, give you your resolution to the film but that whole impetus really felt forced. I mean, it felt like they were just trying to reach for that. And instead of having something that can be an actual character character flaw that can be built and developed on and can be readdressed later on, they just kind of treated it as something passe just to, you know, force a little bit of extra drama into the film. Now, Thankfully, the acting is just goddamn spot on. And say what you will about Sylvester Stallone and anything else that he's done. This is his character. Rocky is truly his character. He wrote it, uh, regardless of who it was based on or not based on. Uh, He wrote it. He's acted it. He's lived it. He's breathed it through all of these sequels. Most of the vast majority of the sequels successful. And it shows. And when you have spent the better part of 40 years with a character, it's just, it's, it's as natural as breathing. Michael B. Jordan is just a stunning actor, and I'm so sad that he's still forever going to be tied to Fantastic Four, but whatever. He really does 
do a great job. I think that even in terms of the boxing, I really loved how they altered the view of what you see in a boxing match. Uh, the way they pull them out from uh, from the locker rooms and everything. Uh, the way they do the tight shots. The way they actually show the punches. And this was something that we kind of, that Tim noted about Southpaw that was good. And I do agree with him on that. But I really felt that this just upped its game. And I think in terms of the drama, I think that this is something that Southpaw could have totally learned from. But that one issue where they tried to just force the drama to kick off the third act. Um, I just did not enjoy that. And I think it, I think it has the potential to damage the franchise if they don't properly address it and have something for him to grow on in the second film, uh, that I'm sure will be coming all in all, you must see this film. If you haven't seen it, please go and see it. 4.75 out of five. Yeah. What do you got there, Tim? Bring us home. I don't. I don't think you enjoyed it enough. <laughs> um, quickly, well, if it's the last movie of the year, it's oh, got to be good, right? I know, right? Yeah. Uh, quickly for mine, um, I agree for for the most part. This is a four point five out of five movie for me. It is not perfect. It is not a perfect movie, but it's still a really really good film the characters are well thought out and genuinely portrayed the handling of the character of rocky balboa is better than anyone i think would have actually expected because he easily could have gone into stereotypical camp territory because he's rocky balboa and he has all these catchphrases and he's known for doing specific things and even with the rocky rocky balboa movie that stallone uh, directed uh, back in 0506 or 07, 08, around that time. It, it kind of went into camp territory. And this one didn't venture venture into camp at all. And I think that alone deserves some praise. Uh, because of, this is, what, I mean, there's already been so many of these movies. Um, there's a reason why the original Rocky was nominated for three Academy Awards, which included Best Director and Best Picture. And this film, Creed, encomp- uh, encompasses those same qualities. You know, it's not just that the performances are stellar, but it has really good writing and directing as well. And this is better, and, and you can really tell that the that the that the force behind the writing and the directing are really good. Are they're actually really good at at doing these things? Is because that the story and the screenplay approached. Or, or the story in the screenplay was approached with the utmost respect and maturity. The characters don't upstage the story. The story doesn't upstage the characters. And the filmmaking, the director, does not upstage the story either. And what I mean by that is that the movie doesn't feel over-directed. Everything feels natural for the most part. Especially the acting. Like I mentioned, Rocky Balboa could have just been saying Rocky Balboa things and being all macho and not necessarily being macho and cool. I mean, he's always been kind of, in the past couple of movies, been a little bit defeated and whatnot. But again, it could easily have gone into campish type of territory. And it never does. It stays true to the characters, true to the, to- uh, true to the story, and is just honest about everything from the very beginning of the film. And it's quite... It's nice to see, and I think Ryan Coogler is definitely an up-and-coming director. He is about to direct the upcoming Black Panther movie, 
for Marvel. But uh, he uh, directed the film also with Michael B. Jordan that came out uh, last or two years ago called Fruitile Salvation. Uh, or it's not Fruitile Salvation. Fruitile, uh, Fruitvale Station. <laughs> for years, for a couple years now, I thought it was called Fruitile Salvation. And I literally found out five minutes ago that it's called Fruitvale Station. Crazy dyslexic, I think I am. Uh, however, the only the only the only issue I had this with movie, with this movie is that the stakes of the film do feel forced, um, and and it just and it kind of just felt like okay, well let's get the let's get the third act going, let's get the last act go, uh, going, let's throw some let's throw some stakes into the mix and have the characters go through these things. Uh, you know, in, a, in such a forced way that it does it, it kind of negates the whole kind of natural feeling of everything that kind of came before it. But it's only at that moment, once those stakes are thrown into the picture, or it, once the stakes are thrown into the mix, and then soon after you kind of, you know, like, okay, you, you brush it off to the side and you just move on. But again, this is a 4.5 out of 5 star movie for me, uh, for both of us, and hell, guys, I think you should go and uh, go and check it out. And I do think... Uh, John Travolta, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I do think Sylvester Stallone's Best Supporting Actor a Golden Globe nomination is warranted. He is really, really good in this movie. Awesome. All right. Well, that concludes the movies pretty much basically for 2015. Um, we will be coming back in episode, oh, goodness gracious, 161. I think will be the again that first new episode, and we're going to be doing uh, Star Wars: The Force Awakens, The Revenant, and While We Were Young. That's right, folks. That... So, so episodes one fifty nine and one sixty won't be new. Well, they will be new, but they won't have new <laughs> movies. Epis- uh, the next two episodes are going to be our end of year, episode 159, next week's episode is going to be our end of year review. We're going to talk about the uh, best of 2015 in our personal opinions, movie-wise, the worst of 2015, um, movie-wise. We'll talk about, you know, what stupid shit we like to do for Christmas. And also, we might, uh, actually, we not might, we will bring up a few movies that we watched either together independently um but just we didn't include them on the show and talk about some hits and misses there and then of course episode 160 which will be two weeks from now is of course our what we're looking forward to in 2016 and i guess that brings us uh to the spiel does it not sir Spiel on! Alright, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can also follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter. At nitwit12345, you can also track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Michael B. Jordan, I get to say this. You start at a young age going on auditions and you think you did a good job and expect to get that role and you don't. And it's a letdown, a disappointment. So you tell yourself to just do the work and disconnect 
because you have no control over the outcome. And take your guys, and we'll talk back at you again next week. Or talk, talk, talk at you. Talk. Just take care, cinephiles. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.